Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. It's a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve this history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you will hear in a few minutes. I'm Chun. I'm Miles. And I'm Red. This week, we are honored to sit down with Joe DeCure, uh, one of the creators of the Atari 2600. Uh, in it, we are going to talk here. We'll, we will hear Alex talk about that process, uh, his story developing that, and the Atari 800 computer and that interface, um, as well uh, as... Well as everything else it'll be a great interview uh he joe decure has had a lot of uh, big influence on computer uh, engineering uh throughout the entire thing in computer science uh, he has uh, he helped establish the usb standards and the earlier computers uh, usb 1.0 and 1.1 as well as uh, some bluetooth standards so it'll be interesting to uh, hear his, uh, perspective from basically from the inside as the inside gets. <laughs> but as far as that, we will get into some news of the day and then what we are playing. The only little bit of news, uh, one of the only little bits of news that I got today is that it was Mario's uh, 35th birthday recently. So that is a big happy birthday to you, Mario. Happy birthday, Mario. Happy birthday. And as we, uh, as far as Nintendo celebrating Mario, uh, Nintendo rather released uh, Super Mario Brothers 35, which is, uh, in a sense, a battle royale Mario game. Uh, there is 35 online players in a party. You are completing Mario stages, in effect, and just jumping on the heads of all the Goombas and all the other enemies. And sending them to the other players, and you just want to be the last one standing, standing out of thirty-five, uh, in order to be the last one and be the winner. So that's an uh, interesting take on Mario's on a Mario battle royale. So in the meantime, I think that is a, I think that is a really good uh, concept for a Mario game. Like we've seen a lot of sort of multiplayer Mario's where everyone's on the same stage and you know jumping, and it's whoever gets there first. But this sort of being more explicitly antagonistic is really sort of an interesting new approach to it. I'm interested to see how it how it stands out. You know what we call those kind of games? Hmm. We call it Friendship Destroyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. They are. Uh, it's most definitely a Friendship Destroyer, especially because you can uh, <laughs> deliberately send enemies to a specific player. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. It's, I already uh, heard screaming some swear in my brain if I'm going to play it with my friends. <laughs> yeah, just ear, <laughs> just ear-splitting screams. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. It's going to have as bad as Mario Kart. Yeah. Oh, no. I bet it, it's probably worse because you, yeah. you're literally sending stuff to do. <laughs> oh, man. We'll see. Don't get me started with Mario Kart. That's a, that's a whole other bag of worms. Yeah. I'm very bad at driving, too, so... I'm always the one who loses. Even if I win, someone will always get a blue shell on me. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I mean, it just happened. Mm. No, I love playing Mario Kart. Yeah, RNG Jesus just wasn't yeah. on your side that day. Yep. 
Yeah. In other news, as we approach uh, December and the end of the year, we're getting into Game Awards season. So uh, the Game Awards will be taking place on November 10th. No, December 10th. December 20th. One of those numbers is right. Just cut it. <laughs> cut to the one that's right. Uh, I think it's a 10. Uh, <laughs> Leave that. December in. 10th. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, while voting is still open, we are just going to go down the line of Game of the Year. Uh, nominations. So first up is Doom Eternal from id Software slash Bethesda. Uh, I played that and I absolutely adored it. Uh, Final Fantasy VII, the remake from Square Enix. Gorgeous game. Loved it myself. Mm-hmm. I will for uh, it. Ghost of Tsushima from Sucker Punch. That's a beautiful game. Never... Yeah, I've been I've been meaning to pick that up. It looks like exactly the kind of game I'd love. It's another think, one on the top of the list. I think the strategy that they're releasing a single-player game first and then giving multiplayer update is really good. I mean, it's a DLC, but it's, it doesn't require you to pay anymore. So I think it's a pretty mm-hmm. good strategy. And yeah, I, I, I agree. Would, I would see someone is probably going to do it after that too. So It will be a... Yeah, it will be an interesting one to see, like online cinematic battles with multiple samurai. I wonder if it's going to be sort of more strictly duels, or if it's going to be sort of open world, just goes to Tsushima but multiplayer. You know? Yeah, that'll be. It, it's like a a raid. It's like a a dungeon. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it has a pretty different art style and background together with the main story of the game the main story is more realistic it's more traditional okay. japanese samurai but the other one is like you're killing yokai <laughs> hmm. yeah okay. that'll be good yeah that's a difference of it interesting hmm. continuing down the list with one of the um uh indie games uh is hades from Supergiant, local boys amazing game highly recommend i've been playing that recently i can't recommend it enough i haven't had this much fun uh playing a roguelike like this in a very long time this is as enjoyable as it gets and we can talk about it a little more later but it's uh i'll set aside some time but it's it's fantastic the sound is amazing everything about it is super fun and it meshes really well together Mm mm-hmm yeah. So uh, I... Next is sorry. Go on. Oh, no, you go. Next is Animal Crossing: New Horizons from Nintendo. I, I love that game. That I know that will they will with the amount of time they've spent in that game that that's what they're voting for. You know, it's mm-hmm. you know something is tired just to save the world or fighting monster every day or just shooting someone. It's very good to have some place to take a rest. I mean, um, sometimes. Sometimes I, I'm really tired in real life, and I just don't want to put any other duty on me. I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to save the world if I'm tired. I mean, it's a really good place for, for me to take a rest, and sometimes even... As, it's really a precious place for times like now in the COVID when we can't meet some people that we used to meet, and, or maybe we are just in different countries so that we can't meet yeah, each other. Yeah, I mean, some people were... Uh, some people were questioning how perfect the release of New Horizons was yeah. with 
the lockdown, like everybody's staying home. So we, we can the right make you game. go outside in the, the outside world with islands and cute mm-hmm. little animals. It's, it's the right game in right time and right places. And they have done a lot of amazing works in terms of audio and other game design. And they're really, they're really updating it almost every few months, I think. And they're still updating, I think. And it's not, it's all free as, as, as soon as you have bought the game, of course. That's and, amazing. Yeah. And the scale of releasing new stuff is pretty good. I mean, like they really have a new area, like you can go out of the sea and they will have new stuff. So it's a pretty good That's game smart. to play with friends. Mm-hmm. It's just good, clean, wholesome, very just pleasant. And we need more games like that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Pleasant is a great word. Uh oh, uh another small bit of news. Uh oh. Before you get into the news, I think there is one more uh game of the year nominee. The last game of the year nominee is going to be The Last of Us Part Two from Naughty Dog. That is uh an amazing story that deserves that deserves an that can also breed a lot of discussion, uh not suitable uh for this uh, for this podcast, for this GPG rated podcast, um, yeah. <laughs> so we will leave. It's an fire. excellent, interesting, mature story. Yes, and that's as far as we will go for we'll, the moment. We will leave the discussion back to those Reddit or somewhere else. Yes, uh, <clears throat> exactly. We'll let them take care of it. Um, but I think that's enough of uh, enough of the news for the day. Other than there is a new, uh, I believe it's called a Katamari Damacy re-roll, basically a remastered mm-hmm. Katamari being released on all the on Switch, PS4, and Xbox One. Uh, highly recommend everybody check that out if you know if you want another peaceful game that's not necessarily it's it's more goofy than uh, the nice piece of Animal Crossing, but but. The the gameplay is incredibly satisfying. Mm-hmm. It's a very typical game on Nintendo. I mean, Nintendo is very good at making games that are not that in not that intense to to make player really be able to take rest. And I think the Katamari game is quite a classic game in yeah in that kind of genre too. I think they have made it's a very step. It's very unique. I don't think of I can't think of any game that really does what Katamari does from a gameplay yeah. t- style. It's, very it's true. Very, it's very fun. unique. It's just so fun. And it's very fun, yeah. It would be interesting to see another game made with the Katamari engine. <laughs> just having the entire rolling mechanics and going around. Uh mm-hmm. I can think of a couple anime characters that that engine might be <laughs> useful for. Uh but in the meantime, uh, I think we should let Alex get on with his interview with the wonderful Joe Cure. Uh, we would like to thank him for his time very much for this. Uh, without further ado, here is Joe Cure and Alex in interview. 
Enjoy. Hello, and welcome back. This is Alex Handy here. I am incredibly honored to have Joe DeCure here. Joe is responsible for the Atari 2600, the Atari 8-bit computer, and the Amiga, but we're only going to be talking about the Atari today. Thank you for being here. You should know that success has a thousand fathers, failure is an orphan. I contributed to all of those things. I was not the only contributor. Certainly, though. There were numerous other people involved, obviously. Yes, you want yes. To, you want to shout out to the people that maybe don't get named all the time? It would it would take a long time. Um, obviously, in all three cases, I was an apprentice to Jay Minor, rest his soul. Um, but lots and lots of other people contributed. Let's keep going. Well, uh, let's talk about Jay Minor. I mean... He, okay. What I like to talk about here on this podcast is context. So how did you come to know... Jay, what made you guys get along? Where did this all start? Let's start a little bit farther back. So I was work in 1975. I'm working in medical research. I'm applying to medical school, um, and I'm working at uh, a research hospital in San Francisco. But they ran out of money to fund the the study we were doing on shock lung. So I was given two months' notice that they were going to lay me off. So I had to look for another job. I looked for and found two jobs. I found one job with a medical electronics company in Orange County, California, where I was going to be their microprocessor expert. I was a, a student of microprocessors at the time. I'd already worked on it. And well, well, I can, had, uh, can I just interrupt real quick? Microprocessors were brand new at the time. I mean, this was super yes, cutting edge. Yes. Uh, they first came out in 1971. I took my first class in microprocessors in 1973. My first uh, engineering job from 73, 74 was working on adapting um, interfaces to intensive care monitoring equipment to mini computers. Wow. So I was learning computer architecture. I understood microprocessor programming. Um, so I could do that sort of stuff. Um, so it was an attractive idea to move back to Orange County, which is driving range from my parents in LA, because the surf is really good. I spent the 60s as a surfer. <laughs> I've gained a few pounds since then. Um, so that was one of the possibilities, but I also networked through my buddies and a buddy of mine knew somebody at Atari and they were looking for somebody to help out with this, some video game thing. And luckily for me, I had learned a little bit about video games that summer. I had learned to play tank at um, Disneyland in Anaheim. So I got called in on, in fact, it was 45 years ago this week. I was interviewed over the Thanksgiving weekend in Los Gatos, and I think I saw Jay, but I was mostly interviewed by a bunch of people from Atari CoinUp. And um, obviously, I didn't know it. Have you heard the expression, luck favors the prepared mind? <laughs> well, now I have. So I had been studying microprocessors in my copious free time, and I had actually gone to... Um, Westcon, where the 6502 was introduced. <laughs> and that's my card from getting into Westcon. Joe is showing me his actual so, card at this point. So I had studied the microprocessor, which I didn't realize that they had chosen. 
I mean, for this new machine, I, I want to even ask, why did you learn about microprocessors? I mean, that must have been the most cutting edge, coolest thing that could possibly have been. Because it was cutting edge and coolest thing. Uh, what got you? You know, I, I, I studied WCS and pre-med and my curiosity about, you know, uh, electrical engineering, computer science led to microprocessors. Obviously, I'd say the biggest contribution of engineers to the 20th century was the computer. And we went from the mainframe style machines and the special purpose things in World War II down to microprocessors in only 25 years. And they had gotten down to the point where we had a 4-bit microprocessor in P-channel. And that came out the year before I graduated from Berkeley. And already, you know, a few years later, we have an 8-bit microprocessor that runs a lot faster, um, that was only going to cost $25 a piece in onesies. So I thought, I can afford one. And I went and bought one myself, plus the manuals. I don't have the chip anymore, but I still have the manuals. So the point is, luck favors a prepared mind. I had studied the microprocessor that Atari had already chosen for this new machine. Now, unsung heroes or sung heroes, Steve Mayer and um, Ron Milner, who worked at Atari up at their think tank in Cyan Engineering, had conceived of this thing. And so they were looking for somebody to come up and, and A, help get it to work, and B, to take that design with me back from Nevada City, California, to Los Gatos, California. Their experience was they would invent something new and then they would send it to the people in Los Gatos who would say, not invent it here and forget about it. So they wanted to have somebody come up, get it to work, stick it in his head, send me back down to get it built. That was the story of that process. And like I say, not only did I was I self-prepared on the processor that I didn't know that they had chosen yet, but I had played a video game already. So when they were walking me out through the lobby, here's a bunch of Atari video games with no coin slots. And they say, you want to play one? And I thought, I bet you they're going to decide whether to hire me or not. <laughs> and I looked around the room and I noticed an Atari tank and I had played that that summer. So I said, I just walked over to the Atari tank and looked at it, and they said, you like to play tank? And I said, yeah. So I played three games, passable. I won one of the three. Yeah. And they must have thought, that's a hire. So I was hired pretty much on the spot. Uh, now, I think another thing that we have to say for our podcast listeners here in this new generation is that you say, yes, I'd played a video game. That was actually a rare kind of thing in, what, 75? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, the first video games were patented in 1968 the first ones were shipping the um, Magnavox Odyssey in 1972 in fact uh, Nolan Bushnell pirated the design of the Magnavox Odyssey to make Pong that's another story for another day <laughs> um, so yes those were quite rare at that time I mean you were a rare bird walking into there like having experience with the microprocessor probably only a few people it on was, earth had that experience at that time in history yes the Berkeley was one of the first schools to teach a class in the 4004 which was two years after it was first introduced mm -hmm. 
and I took that class and I aced it. And that's so uh, you're very correct. And the uh, fortune favors the prepared mind. There was also a huge amount of luck, right? But there I was. So I got um, hired by Atari, and I first of all went to work for Mayer and Miner up in uh, Cyan Engineering, and they had designed but not debugged that original prototype. I got it to work. And so they introduced upper management to come up and see it in February of that year. And they came up and they were impressed. And they said, you're moving on down. So I left the apartment. The um, <laughs> apartment. I was staying in a hotel, basically. Mm-hmm. So I moved down to an apartment in um, Los Gatos and started working for J Minor. So I get to finally work with J Minor beginning of March 1976. I got to sit down with him. Um, and he was a lot older than I was. Of course, I was 25 and he was 50-ish. And bearded, really friendly guy, square dancer. And um, I remember talking about this stuff and he's the one who told me that success has a thousand fathers, failure is an orphan. Mm-hmm. I got that from him. Mm. So um, I hooked up with him as, as the apprentice. Um, I was I was hired both because I understood enough hardware to be dangerous and enough software to be dangerous. And so the contributions that I made to that machine had a lot to do with recognizing how we could move some functions from hardware into software and move other functions from software into hardware. Um, A lot of the people I see talking about the Atari 2600 say that the the television is actually an extension of the console, right? Like it, yes. it's very much a piece of it. It's not just this drawing palette with frame buffers. For right. Great. And it, it, well, yes, it has no frame buffer. <laughs> it only has a line buffer. It was very, I think the Spectrum ZX is the only other instance of a machine that only had a line buffer, not a frame buffer. And so we were making it really simple and cheap because the 6502 was fast enough to keep up with the horizontal lines as it was writing down the screen. Rather than having hardware that mapped a big piece of memory to the screen. And we did this to be cheap because at that time in history, enough memory to cover the screen was going to be a lot of dough. But in retrospect, and I say this in retrospect, um, we inadvertently put the ver- the video in the hands of the programmers, who turned out to be a lot more clever than we realized. We expected that machine to have a two or three year shelf life. It sold for at least 10 years, at least 30 million units. It was more successful than we realized. It was a remarkable feat of engineering, and then you know the TIA chip and the actual the processor itself. People, there's an interesting uh, saying in sort of the emulation community. People are like, "Oh, 2600, that should be easy to emulate. Why can't you do it?" <laughs> right? And it's like they have no idea. No, no. As a matter of fact, as an aside, here I am, 42 years, 43 years after it shipped, and as a teacher of students, I have students 
who are working on building field programmable gate array emulations of the TIA chip. <laughs> um, a, a, a late buddy of mine, Kurt Vendel, built one of these for a descendant of Atari and shipped it as a flashback 2.0 back in 2008, no, 2007, sometime back in the 2000s. And it sold a million units. Unbelievable. But that was a hardware emulation, not an ARM CPU assembly code emulation. All nowadays, all the 65, all the TIA emulators are software emulation because the software is way too fast. Yeah, but the actual, I mean, the, the the to really get it accurate and to draw it the same way that it was being, and to render it the same way it was being rendered, you have to em- emulate like an analog system and the digital system interfacing. Right. Well, mercifully, I still have the schematics. <laughs> uh, so I also wanted to talk about the 8-bit Atari computer since we're almost you know, yes. halfway through this. Already. Right. Uh, how did right. that project get started? Well, first of all, we knew that there would need to be a follow-on um, because we knew that if you don't replace your, proj- proj- your products, other people will. Once you have gone to the trouble of proving that there's a market there, you're going to attract lots of competition. We knew that was going to happen. So um, the interesting problem that we had with our next machine was, is this going to be the next great game machine, or is this going to be a personal computer? And what we wound up doing, to make a long story short, was both. We built one chipset, and we packaged it two ways. We were planning to build a machine that wasn't originally going to have a keyboard that eventually became the Atari 400 that had the same great animation capability uh, beyond the 2600 and then we were going to take the same chipset and package it differently with a full stroke keyboard expansion buses etc etc and that became the Atari 800 what happened was Doug Neubauer, one of the chip designers on the team, he designed the Pokey chip. He got done designing the Pokey chip and he got kind of bored. And so he wrote the killer uh, game application, a killer original game for that platform. And it was called Star Raiders. And Star Raiders needed a keyboard to play. And it was so good, so powerful, that marketing decided that we had to put in a chiclet, you know, a sort of a touch-sensitive keyboard on the 400 so you could play Star Raiders. Mm-hmm. So we wound up with two machines, same insides, different outsides. Um, and that machine sold about 5 million units. The the iconic thing that I always think of for the 8-bits uh, Atari computers is the robot walking demo, uh, which would yeah, run in well, stores, right? Like, I mean, it was sort of an eye-catching oh, thing. Sure. It was really a, a, quite a powerful machine for its day. Well, you know, people have built a bouncing ball demo from Amiga, <laughs> and it now also runs on the Atari 8-bits. That's crazy. I mean, there are still people out there doing demo scene stuff for it. I mean, all of your, oh, all yes. your stuff is still being programmed and for. <laughs> there's a huge... There is, there's a conference. I think it's in Poland every year, and uh, you know, so there's a big retro uh, scene for that. I get a newsletter in German 
from a club that's headquartered in uh, where's the town? It's in well the the newsletters are German, which means I need to learn to read technical German. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a huge club scene and demo scene more in the in Europe than in the United States, but it's still popular. Very much so. Um, so yeah, what, and then the Amiga came along. Well, uh, what have what have you seen in maybe in the demo scene or people who have later found things to do with your hardware that has really impressed you? The thing that impresses me most is quite modern. Um, a buddy of mine, Tom Cherry Holmes, who lives in Austin, Texas, he and his buddies have built a machine called the FujiNet. And you basically take an Arduino family machine called the ESP32. It has a 32-bit CPU. It has built-in Bluetooth and Wi-Fi in it. And they've hooked it up to the Atari serial bus We'll get to the serial bus later. But the Atari 8-bits were designed by people who were uh, aware of how OS 360 worked. So the insides of the Atari 8-bit computers was professionally designed but scaled to meet that platform. And it was designed to be extensible. So as a software and as a hardware effort, Thomas and his buddies have built basically a Wi-Fi adapter that hangs off of the Atari serial bus and then they've hacked the Atari OS they've extended it in the standard ways so that there's now an end device so here's a microcomputer with you know 8-bit processor 1.8 megahertz you know not 1.8 gigahertz (laughs) I'm sitting in front of a computer that's got a quad-core Intel architecture that runs on 64 bits wide it runs in 1.8 gigahertz. This is a processor that's radically narrower and radically slower. And they're trying to write web browsers. <laughs> have they succeeded? <laughs> sort of. Um, they have written some tools hmm. that run over networks. And um, so there's, they, they're now setting up to sell through the uh, hardware and software community these FujiNets. Hmm. I did some testing on one of them. It works. <laughs> um, which means that they're building up a network of people who are connected with these retro machines 41 years after we first chipped it. That's amazing. Now, the interesting thing about all this is that the complexity is they're so simple compared to modern machines that a person can actually understand what's going on. <laughs> And if I had copious free time, which I don't, what I would like to do is finish the book on the Atari 8-bit computers. For um, I was working on it for the um, MIT Press. Mm. There's already one on the 2600 oh, Racing the called Racing the Beam. Wonderful book. And there's one on the Amiga called The Future Was Here. Mm. I want to finish the one in the middle on the Atari 8-bitters. I would call it Encore, um, Atari's second system. And the reason I want to write, one of the reasons I want to write this is I want to explain to people how to program the Atari 8-bits. Because if you want to write a video game in today's market, the rendering engines are astonishingly complicated. It takes tens if not hundreds of man years to create a new game in today's environment. But I want to enable artists to create their own simple retro games 
where it's simple enough that you can actually understand it and write a new game in like a season. This is already happening. Um, Atari Age, you know, actually markets video games by people writing for the 2600. And they might also market games written for the Atari 8-bits. So there's still some people creating in this space and some people consuming in this space. And of course, in this space now, you can not only try to get your hands on the old hardware to play the old games, but you can run emulations on PCs, you could run it on Mac OS, you could probably run it on uh, Linux implementations. So there's a lot of people playing the emulators because they're a whole lot easier to get your hands on. <laughs> right? Yep. And if, like I say, if I had free time, which I don't, I would want to support this community of digital artists and their customers. Well, that These devices you have designed are artistic mediums, and they will live on forever. We realized that was one of the huge lessons that we learned when we when when we sort of did an internal postmortem on the twenty six hundred. We realized that we had created a canvas for artists who were much more talented than we gave them credit for. You know, I think of the the amazing brand new games created for that platform, like River Raid, which did vertical scrolling like uh, Pitfall, which moved horizontally, like um, Yars Revenge, like uh, Adventure. Mm -hmm. Adventure just still, mm -hmm. to this day, sort of blows me away. Mm -hmm. If and when I finish writing this book on the Atari 8-bits, I have Warren Robinett's permission to port his adventure game to the 8-bits. That would be amazing. Unfortunately, our time is up today, Joe. I would love to have you That's on fine. again at some future date. Thank you so much for all you've done, and thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the made afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we will continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I am Alex, also Red. I'm Chin. And I'm Miles. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving.